who are watching by live stream, uh, it is so good to be here in the meeting. And uh, yes, urge you to come back as soon as your conscience permits. I really appreciated this morning uh, the string section, so beautiful. Thank you. I really appreciated the prophetic song and the prophetic word as well. Let's go in our Bibles to Isaiah 46. Isaiah chapter 46. And I'd like us to read verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. We believe, and the topic is the doctrine of God. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I want to begin this morning on a, on a personal note. As is the case, I suppose, with all of us, I have at times found myself deeply perplexed and depressed. Life took some unexpected and unwelcomed and unhappy turns, and to say that I was down during those seasons would be an understatement. I know what it's like to wake up in the morning and wish the day was over. Looking back, what's a little surprising to me is that again and again, I have found profound comfort and help in books. Compared to some of my, my fellow pastors on the pastoral team, I don't read a lot of books. But I read a few books again and again. There are two books in particular, both of which deal with the doctrine of God that have helped me most during those seasons of despair. The first book is a magisterial two-volume set, first published in 1682, entitled The Existence and Attributes 
of God by Stephen Charnock. Charnock's 1,100-page study of the existence of God, the eternity of God, the omnipresence of God, the knowledge of God, the power of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the patience of God, etc., is still my go-to resource when I become depressed. I realize that I'm down, and I walk over to my bookshelf, and I say, okay, Brother Charnock, tell me again who God is. The second go-to book is The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. That book applies the doctrine of God's sovereignty over all things and the doctrine of his infinite wisdom to Christian living with a call to trust that wisdom that lies behind all his sovereign acts and to learn contentment. God knows what he's doing so we can peaceably submit to whatever God in his fatherly wisdom ordains for us. So I think it's accurate for me to say this morning that few things have brought me greater comfort in trial than the doctrine of God. Spurgeon said to his congregation, would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in its immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. If you have your statement of faith with you, and I urge you all to get this if you don't already have it, the little white booklet, Sovereign Grace's Statement of Faith. Turn there and follow along with us beginning in page 11, where the book discusses the nature of God. Now, some people denounce statements of faith, saying they're merely the words of men and the formulations of men. We have the word of God. We don't need the words of man. But to understand the word of God, Scripture must be compared with Scripture. And the discipline of doing that is known as systematic theology. Systematic theology attempts to synthesize the entire teaching of the Bible on a topic. And this is, this is that's, a, that's challenge enough, but it also does this. It seeks to do it in a way that doesn't contradict what we understand the Bible to teach on any other topic. It is a massive labor. Systematic theology. 
And I'm grateful for generations that have gone before us, like those who formulated the Westminster Catechism, for the work that they did in systematic theology. So systematic theologies and the statements of faith which emerge from them and the catechisms which emerge from them aren't written to eclipse or circumvent or outshine the Bible. They're written to pull together the conclusions of studying the Bible into a coherent whole. Most systematic theologies and our statement of faith begin with the doctrine of Scripture. Why is that? Like, isn't theology about God? Why not start with God? Well, they begin with the doctrine of Scripture for good reasons. Before we can make any definitive statements about God, we must first establish on what basis we think we have certain knowledge of him. How do you know anything about him at all? So the doctrine of Scripture is treated first. We know about God because God has revealed himself to us in his word. That was last week's sermon. This week, our section on the state, in the statement of faith, under the tri, triune God, the nature of God, begins with these words. There is one true and living God who is infinite in being, power, and perfections. God is eternal, independent, and self-sufficient, having life in himself with no need for anyone or anything. I picked up my copy of the Statement of Faith on Tuesday night and read again those words, and my thought was this. Every day we are bombarded with lies. Every day our minds and our ears are bombarded with harsh and discordant cacophonies of falsehood. And here, like the sound of a trumpet, are words which blow away the noisy confusion, words which, which cut through all the nonsense with the truth, words which dispel the thick, polluted clouds of vain speculation, bringing comfort and hope and peace to all who have ears to hear them. There is one true and living God. He is. He exists. He is true. And he is alive. God declares in our text this morning, I am God, and there is no other. That is a clear assertion from God countering atheism, the idea that God does not exist. It counters polytheism, the idea that there are many gods. It counters pantheism, which says that everything is in some way divine. 
there is a God. There is but one God. He is the true God. He is the living God. And it goes on to say, there is none like me. God says, there's none like me. There is no one who can be compared to me. That's not arrogance, that's the truth. There exists none like him. He is utterly unique. This one true and living God possesses unique attributes, unique qualities which make him utterly unlike any of his creatures. We humans tend to imagine that the conditions and the the bounds and the limits of our own finite existence apply to God. They do not. (laughs) When we try to contemplate, when we try to contemplate any of his unique and infinite attributes, our brains tilt like a pinball machine that's been jostled too hard. Our brains shut down, they lock up, they hang like a Windows update. We affirm that he is infinite in being. That is, he has always existed and always will exist. The answer to the child's question, Daddy, Mommy, who who made God? Who made God? And the answer to that question is that he never needed to be made. Because he was always there. And he always will be there. His being is infinite, having no beginning and no end. Our statement of faith here declares that he is infinite in all his attributes. Thus there is no limit to any of his perfections. He is infinite in them all. So God is infinite in power. He is boundless in power. Which is why one of his names is the Almighty. He's all-powerful. He's the omnipotent one. He has power to do anything and everything that in his wisdom and goodness he wills to do. Jeremiah contemplated the Lord's creative power and it, it, he, he worshipped. Ah, Lord God. Ah, Lord God. Behold. Thou hast made heaven and earth by thy great power and outstretched arm. It takes your breath away. There is nothing too difficult for thee. So Jeremiah worshipped the true and living God. God is infinite in his 
goodness. His goodness includes his love, his love, his kindness, his mercy, his faithfulness, his compassion, his generosity. How good is God? How good is he? You can't plumb the depths of his goodness. We say his love is as wide as the ocean. We say it's as deep as the sea. We say it's as high as the mountain. But all those words fall hopelessly short of the infinite reality. He is infinitely good and his goodness is who he is in his infinite being. We say that God is infinite in holiness. Oh, never denigrate the holiness of God. It is his beauty. It's his beauty. When God calls himself holy, it means that he is totally set apart and utterly distinct from his creation. God reveals in himself in scripture to be pure and unmixed light. Which means that in his essence, in his nature, he is free from all blemish. So that everything that flows from his essence is also free from all blemish. His every thought, his every attitude, his every word, and everything he does is free from taint or blemish. Brothers and sisters, we can't get through a day. We can't get through an hour without moral imperfections. But he has always been infinite moral perfection. Charnock says that God's infinite moral purity is the soul and the spirit animating all his other attributes, making them beautiful. His justice is a holy justice. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. His might is a holy might. His love is a holy love. His promises are holy promises. We also say that he is infinite in wisdom. He alone is completely, totally, perfectly Wise. Wisdom in Scripture means choosing the best and noblest end. It's choosing the, the best and noblest end to wit, at which to aim, along with the most appropriate and effective means to it. So says J.I. Packer in Concise Theology. Charnock devotes 92 pages to discussing God's wisdom in relation to each of his other attributes. So for example, he says, wisdom is naked without power to act. And power is useless without wisdom to direct. In other words, how, how helpless is wisdom without power to exercise it? And how useless or even scary is power, infinite power, without wisdom to direct it and guide it. But God 
God has infinite power to act and he has infinite wisdom to guide the exercise of his power. Can, can you see? Can you see how that can bring comfort? Can, do you see how that can relieve depression? Look, if, if God's sovereign choices concerning me and my loved ones emerge from infinite moral goodness and are guided by infinite wisdom, then I can rest and be at peace, trusting his wisdom and his fatherly love. Our statement also says God is eternal, independent, and self-sufficient. So he's eternal. He's not bound by time. He's independent and self-sufficient, not needing anyone or anything. Furthermore, it says that he is spirit, transcendent, and invisible. You'll remember that Jesus explained to the woman at the well that a day was coming and in fact had arrived when God would not be worshipped on this mountain or another mountain. Because, Jesus explained to her, God is spirit and is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. God's presence is not limited to one mountain or another. God is not bound by spatial location as we are. He is everywhere present in the fullness of his being. Now that's another mind-blowing truth. He is everywhere present in the fullness of his being, which means that he's not super big and spread out. With a part of him here and a part of him there and a part of him over there. All of him is invisibly present everywhere. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the, winds of the, the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. When we say that he's transcendent, we mean that he is over and above every dimension of the created order. God does not live in or experience time as we do. Because he is transcendent and not bound by time. Now we could stop at any point here and just scratch our heads and, and marvel. How can that be? But I think it's sufficient for us to say it is true and worship him. Because he's transcendent and eternal, he's not subject to change. He says of himself in Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. I am the Lord, I change not. He doesn't change for better or for worse with time. He doesn't grow in wisdom and understanding as we do. 
He is necessarily perfect from eternity past. He is unchanging, or what we say, He's immutable. Our statement also affirms that He is omniscient, seeing all, knowing all. Nothing is hidden from His sight. Nothing is hidden from His sight. He sees and knows everything, even our thoughts. Our statement speaks of His exhaustive knowledge. There's nothing yet to come that He doesn't already know. A popular teaching known as open theism teaches that God's knowledge of the future and therefore His plans for the future are open. That is, they are conditioned upon our free actions. And our statement counters that by asserting that His knowledge is exhaustive. The statement also says that God is not divided into parts. That is the doctrine of divine, what theologians call the doctrine of divine simplicity. God is not the sum of parts. He's not a composite. He's not one part Father, one part Son, one part Holy Spirit. He is Father. He is Son. He is Spirit in beautiful, harmonious simplicity. Neither is he the sum of his attributes, as if he were part merciful, part just, part holy, part love. God is love. God is holiness. He is justice. He is mercy. He is wisdom. He is all of his attributes in beautiful, harmonious simplicity. So we can never pit or elevate one of the attributes of God against or over another. Next, the statement says... God is incomprehensible in His being and actions. He's incomprehensible in His being and actions. Yet, He reveals Himself such that we can know Him truly and personally. That's on page 12 of your statement of faith. The doctrine of God's incomprehensibility means that as finite beings, we cannot now or ever fully grasp the infinite being. How unsearchable are your ways? And past finding out. As finite beings, we can never fully grasp the infinite being. Our finitude always limits our understanding of God and his ways, which calls for faith. But the doctrine of God's knowability states that God is not so radically transcendent that he's unknowable. In his infinite wisdom, hallelujah, in his infinite wisdom, he made us in his image so that we can have the capacity to truly know Him and to love Him. Well, then we get to the section on the Holy Trinity, also on page 12. This statement, this section of our statement of faith affirms basic Trinitarian orthodoxy. The one true God exists 
eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When our statement says that He eternally exists as three persons, it counters misunderstandings of Scripture which were vigorously debated and found to be unscriptural in the first thousand years of church history. If you read a church history, oh, I want to familiarize myself with the history of the church, you'll spend the first thousand years sorting this out. It, it amazed me when I, when I read sort of my first church history volume through. It's like, they, these guys spent a thousand years sorting this out. We need to be grateful. To your relief, I'm not going to review what all those errors were. But a wonderful thing to think about is this. Because the Godhead exists as distinct persons, there has always been within God himself a fullness of fellowship and love, which has existed from all eternity. God has always been, our statement says, an infinite fountain of being from eternity past. Because God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, He has always been and always will be a fountain of interpersonal engagement and love and relationship. The God of Islam is not like that. He was alone. They assert that he's unchanging. But when did he learn love? When he created? It's a theological problem. This section protects us from the lonely, isolated monotheism of Islam. This statement protects us from the aloof monotheism of, of deism, which many of the founding fathers embraced. It protects us as well from notions of God as some kind of detached, impersonal first cause or a detached, impersonal, amoral force. I'm sorry, Star Wars. It's not true. God has never been alone. Notions of God as remote or disinterested or unrelatable are utterly contrary to his eternal existence as three persons. God has always been profoundly personal and relational from eternity past. He is love and he rules over his creation with relational wisdom and love. The next section deals with God's sovereign purposes or his providence. We read in our Isaiah text, that from ancient, ancient days he declared things not yet done. He declared things not yet done from ancient days. God declared or decreed the beginning. He declared and decreed the end of everything and every matter. And God says that he will accomplish every purpose behind every decree. With that text and many, many others in view, our statement of faith says, page 15, from all eternity, God sovereignly ordained all that exists 
and all that occurs in His creation in order to display the fullness of His glory. God's plans are efficacious, always coming to pass, and they are universal, encompassing all the affairs of nature, history, and individual lives. So from eternity, God ordained everything that happens in nature, everything that happens in history, and everything that happens in our lives. His sovereignty is an exhaustive sovereignty. It is a universal sovereignty. Now, while affirming universal sovereignty, our statement also affirms and upholds human responsibility, making it clear that God is not, because He is sovereign and has ordained all things, that does not make Him the author of sin. It also affirms that that man is not locked into a fatal determinism, as if God's sovereignty somehow robs men and women of free choices. It doesn't. According to Scripture, it doesn't. And the final section we cover today, very, very briefly, is on God's grace in election. As long as we're talking about His sovereignty of all things, let's establish that that sovereignty includes His sovereignty over salvation. The doctrine of election traces the decision to save back to God Himself in eternity past. And it affirms that He not man, determined, and determines who will be saved. Furthermore, Scripture teaches that God's election of us was not based on merit or foreseen faith in us. He didn't look down the corridors of time and said, well, that one is going to choose me, so I will choose that one. That makes... That puts the sovereignty in our hands. His election of us was not based on merit or foreseen faith in us. We're saved, the Bible teaches, by grace alone, not by works of any kind, lest any man should boast. We are saved freely by God's grace in choosing us. He chose us for salvation before the foundation of the world. That provokes wonder. It provokes in me a fear. It it provokes in me humility. God Why me? Why did you choose me? You say it wasn't for anything in me. Why? And the answer is, we don't know. It was because 
Why did he choose us? Because he chose us. I don't know why he chose me, but I praise him. Oh, Lord, I don't understand why you would have ever chosen me. But thank you. And I worship you. And I praise your grace, which came to me. So let's end our time this morning on a note of praise. Let's, let's, let's praise him along with the Apostle Paul, who, while expounding these truths, exclaimed, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And we know that no purpose of his will can be thwarted. And to what end? To what end did he do all this? Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Forever and ever we will be the ones who magnify His grace, His unmerited favor. What can we do but praise Him? Amen. Thank you.